Good morning. Yeah, so since Mark isn't here, I trust he's watching the live stream. I figure I'll make fun of him every few minutes, and if I hear about it, he was watching, you know? All right, we have made it. Paul has been on quite a journey in the book of Acts, and so have we. I've been saying it's coming for a while, but this is it. This is the final message in Acts. It's been over two years that we've been working through it. It's been quite a privilege. Um, Many years ago, uh, my great-grandfather, affectionately known as Dan Dan, when he was nearing the end of his life, my great-uncle met up with him and started just writing down all his stories. He wrote them all down. He typed them up on his typewriter. Uh, My aunt made copies of these and... After he passed away, she distributed these to all these different members of the family. When 2020 came around and COVID and there was a lot of disorientation, I just took that journal down and started carefully reading through Dan Dan's stories. Uh, And reading those, you know, I I recognized it was a privilege. Like, um, my family has sins and failures, but, you know, there's also been moments of faithfulness and it was a, a real honor and stabilizing for me to read Dan Dan's stories and his life. He doesn't spend much time talking about the things that you kind of deeply want him to talk about as I'm reading. I'm like, you know, tell me about your, your kids and your relationship with them and all these things. Mostly he's interested in his hunting stories, which he finds really funny. But what comes through is he was a, a good man and a good storyteller. And it reminded me as I was reading it of what it meant to be a barber in the past and what it could mean to be a barber in the future. I never met him, but one of the benefits of being a Christian is that one day I will, uh, and we'll get to talk about those stories together. So I called this series Family History because when I started the series, I felt fairly disoriented in a similar way. Uh, The church, the trajectory of the church has been really different from what I think I was told and came to expect as a kid, and just asking you know, well, who are we exactly? Uh, and I suspect many of you over the last few years have had a similar experience. And my hope with family history is like, well, let's get up into the attic and let's take out the scrapbook and the journals and read, figure out what it meant to be a member of the family of God in the past and what it means for us in the present. If you are in Christ, the names in these stories that we've been reading are not just historical figures, though they are that. They are people we'll meet again one day and thank them for the stories that we've had. Luke has painstakingly put together this scrapbook, this journal for us to remind us of who we are and our family lineage. So let's finish this journey by looking at Paul's final journey in the scriptures. If you could turn with me to Acts 27. So here's the deal. I typically very much like going verse by verse and very slowly through it. Uh, I think the impact of this is better if you see kind of the big picture, how it ends. So what that means is we're going to be covering a lot of scripture. I'm going to paraphrase a fair amount. I trust you hang with me, Um, but we can do this. All right, so we're going to start in Acts 27, and just briefly setting the table here, Paul is setting sail for Rome. He's in captivity, and we're about to get his pretty remarkable sea journey. As one sailor said in the 1800s, Uh, The details are too specific to not be made up, and yet too awkwardly phrased to have been written by a sailor. So in other words, Luke is on this journey, and he is like, what is going on? And he is writing it all down and giving us a lot of detail, but not in the way an actual sailor would give us that detail. 
which I find humorous and may explain to you the first eight verses of this, which is a lot. So we're going to jump in and we'll get going. Acts 27, follow along with me, please. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramatrium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Cnidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, and Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running along under the lee of a small island called Cauda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me, and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night... There stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Let's pray together for the blessing of God's word. Father, thank you for your scripture. Thank you that it is a trustworthy guide, that it is authoritative that it is the way to life. May we hear what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, you, you know, one day I won't have tons of illustrations about my kids' sleeping patterns, but it's not this day. Uh, so, uh, Posey, our youngest, we've, you know, his fourth child, and you, like, give up. You're like, just sleep in bed with us. Uh, and I had a, a really humorous moment where um, my wife got up early, 
Posey's asleep. I'm asleep in bed. It's like 5 a.m. And she begins, she must have like the worst nightmare she's ever had. And she starts yelling out very angrily, loud, ang more angrily than I've ever heard her speak. No, no, just rage. Turns and begins hitting me, all, all in her sleep, okay? I'm about to wake her up when she yells out, I do it! <laughs> Which means that in her worst nightmare, she's just, people are doing things for her. That's her worst nightmare. Like, that dream was basically, I was trying to zip up her jacket, and she's like, no, I do it! You know, that, that is her worst nightmare, which is all you need to know about Posey. Uh, okay. I suspect, though, that a lot of us have that impulse deep, deep down. And like Posey, she gets it naturally. I'm a bit of a control freak. And uh, as I've thought about that control, it is a way that I cope with anxiety. Uh, if you look at the track record, Jessica is a better driver than I am, but I do more of the driving, and it's because I just feel better when I'm in control, and we can psychoanalyze me later. I suspect a lot of you have similar, similar issues. Uh, we have a mini course program at the school where teachers can choose to run it. You can either be a head teacher and run it or a support teacher, and even though it's twice as much work, I would rather be the head teacher because I want to be in control. I feel like I understand what's going on. I get to set the tone that kind of thing. For me, the thought of suffering because of someone else's decision terrifies me. So you get the idea. Control is my answer to anxiety. I'm essentially, I essentially say I'm willing to lose, but only if I move from a position of strength. I want to fight, but I get to pick the battlefield. So here's the scary thing about the scriptures. No Christian ever gets to move from a position of strength. That's a bold claim, but let's just go through the stories really quickly. Abraham's promised to start an entire nation, and he and his wife can't have children. Joseph is supposed to save his whole family, and step one is he's sold into slavery. Moses and the Israelites are trying to escape, and their back is against the Red Sea. Joshua invades Jericho by wandering around the walls without any weapons. David goes out to fight Goliath with a slingshot. Gideon has an army, and it's cut in half. The Son of God decides to take on the powers of death and evil as a lowly carpenter. The crux of our entire salvation starts when an innocent man is given a criminal's death on a Roman cross. So I hope you're beginning to see it. The Christian life doesn't actually start from a position of strength. And this can be really terrifying. This goes against all our put-away-money-for-college-savings impulses, you know. Uh, we want to be like Posey. I do it. Frank Sinatra, I did it my way, but God's a U2 fan, I think, and says, love is a temple. You ask me to enter, and then you make me crawl. That is where Christianity, as you go through all the stories, people start from this position, not of strength, but of weakness. And as scary as that is, here's the truth. The truth is, because the kingdom of God prevails, because it wins, we do move from a position of strength, but it's God's strength. And that's the good news. So, our final message here, I, I have just two big points, which is I want to look at, I think, this final two chapters of Paul going to Rome to talk with Caesar is just a demonstration of God's sovereignty, of his power, of his kingdom winning, and then our reaction, what our reaction should be to that victory. So, we're going to start with the sovereignty of God and looking at this passage. 
Paul's journey to Rome has been a little bit of an epic journey. If you remember the last time I preached, which was a while ago, so I forgive you if you've forgotten. Uh, <laughs> a while ago, Paul faced off with the authorities, the civic authorities and the religious authorities. He was brought into court, and right away he's facing off with Rome and Jerusalem. He's been put up against every conceivable human power and prevailed through the strength of Christ. But now we are, we are shifting. God has already demonstrated his sovereignty over the authorities time and time again. And I, I would like you to notice before I run on the next thing, this hasn't meant, even though God is sovereign over all the political authorities that Paul has run into, that Peter has run into, it hasn't meant that God has kept his people from discomfort or suffering. When God has people in prison who need to hear the gospel, sometimes he sends a Christian to prison. This seems to happen time and time again, is that God has people that he wants believers nearby, and sometimes the way there is through difficulty. But he has shown, time and time again, that even those apparently low moments are bent towards his purposes, that God is in control the whole ride. But even as we've demonstrated that, we step out to kind of a new enemy for Acts, which is the natural world. So Paul's loaded up onto a ship. There's a centurion named Julius. I love to imagine Julius's experience during this story. I think he had quite the story to tell, and if he was really paying attention, something bigger for him that could have changed his entire life, and maybe did. There were some Roman soldiers, there were sailors, and a group of prisoners. One commentator assumes that these prisoners who are loaded up on the ship with Paul are prisoners who are ultimately going to be fed to the arena in Rome. They're condemned to die. Like Jesus, Paul is an innocent man, counted as a criminal, riding along with those condemned for death. So while in some ways this is kind of, uh, it's honestly a kind of fun shipwreck story, <laughs> uh, I imagine uh, I can recall being younger and being like, ah, this is like an exciting part of the Bible. There's something else going on here that I think the authors wanted us to catch. Many of you are familiar with the opening of the scriptures. They start this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now that water, for the original audience, Hang with me, this pays off. That water of the original audience in the beginning of Genesis, they would have known what that meant. The water represented chaos. It represented unpredictability. Nature at its most vile and harmful. The early stories, the early gods, Marduk and Baal, they were gods, they had to battle the gods of the sea. So when Moses writes Genesis and records all the stories and starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness over the face of the deep. The audience would have known, oh yeah, the chaos of the waters. Is God going to have to face off with the God of the sea like all the other gods? And instead, the Spirit of God was hovering over it and just speaks, let there be light. From disorder to the cosmos. So that audience would have seen right away that God is a sovereign, powerful God who is the God. He doesn't even fight with the gods of the sea, he just creates by merely speaking. And once you see this theme, once you see water as chaos, it's hard to stop seeing it. Noah's Ark, God's people are preserved from the chaos of the water. The Israelites escaping through the Red Sea. 
And when we get to Jesus, what does he do? He's on the sea, there's a storm, and he calms it with his voice. If we even go to the very end of the whole scriptures, there's this wild little thing. I had forgotten it was there, to be honest with you. In Revelation 21, we quote it all the time. We talk about there'll be no more darkness, no more tears. It says no more sea in Revelation 21. And if you're just reading along, you're like, what's wrong with the, I love the ocean, you know? Uh, it's hearkening back all the way to Genesis 1. It's saying that chaos will end. God's sovereignty, his sovereign rule wins. It says it right there. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, John's not talking about, I, I suspect there'll probably be beaches. He's talking about chaos. God wins. So when Paul's ship goes out onto the waters, it's like, all right, we've dealt with people, but now there's this other thing in play. The natural world, the spiritual world set against God. Will Paul make it? Will the church succeed against the stormy chaos underneath? And as the story starts, it looks like no is the answer. They get stuck in this northeaster. The storm begins to win. They have to throw all their material overboard. And then we get this wild line. When neither sun or stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all our hope of being saved was abandoned. If you remember in the beginning of Genesis 1, the first thing God says is let there be light. And we have here, they say they can't see light. There's not sun, there's not stars. They've gone back to the very beginning, the chaos, right? But then God speaks. He speaks through Paul. And Paul's message, do not be afraid. God has given you life. God is going to prevail over the chaos and the stormy seas underneath. If you look with me really quick, uh, look on verse 30. So as they continue sailing on, we have this 30. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless those men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. This is a wild shift. What has happened suddenly is at the very beginning we have Paul saying, and for the record, Paul could sound like a little bit of a jerk, like a person like, I really don't think you should be in this lane, you know, like side seat driving. He has more experience on the Mediterranean than probably anyone else on the ship. He has done a lot of sailing, okay, so in his defense. And at that beginning, when he makes that claim, I don't think we should set sail because things bad are going to happen to us. They ignore him. And here we are. They're in the midst of this total storm. Soldiers and sailors are about to, like, get a little boat and, like, we're getting out of here. And he says, hey, if you do that, you're all going to die. And they trust him so much, they just cut off the other ship. He has gone from being totally ignored to totally listening to. There's something that has happened with these soldiers, with the sailors, with the centurion, where they have realized our only hope is if Paul is right. Even in this journey, Paul is in chains, Paul is on a boat. God had a vision for the people on that boat to see his glory. And they are, because of the faithfulness of Paul. And I'm sure the church, when Paul got on that boat, wept as he's carted off away. But God had a vision for the difficulties that he was going through. He's become the anti-Jonah. 
If you remember the story of Jonah, Jonah is a prophet in the Old Testament. He's called to go to Nineveh. He turns around and runs away from God, gets on a ship, big storm comes, and the way the crew is saved then is Jonah has to be thrown out into the sea. But here we have the obedience of Paul. He's following after God, and the safest place to be is in obedience to our Father. So let's finish this journey. Let's see how it goes. If we look in verse 39. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground, the bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship, and so it was that they were all brought safely to land. So something wild has happened here. Is in this little journey, Paul has interceded for, the, he is doing what the role of the church is. He is praying to God for the whole ship. They are saved because of him. And in the end, even the prisoners who are condemned to die are spared because of Paul and what he has done. You see what's happened is in the beginning, it looked like the Roman centurion has all the power. The political force has all the power. And by the end, the truth is revealed. Even though Paul's the one in chains, he is in the safest place. Because he is in God's hand. He is pursuing him. He has encouraged the entire crew. I skipped over a brief part because we don't have enough time to do it all. He leads them in a meal and a prayer of thanksgiving. He intercedes for the prisoners, and he helps the crew make it to shore. He's the safest one on the boat because he knows God is the one who makes order out of chaos. The storm has no power over God. Paul belongs to God. Therefore, the storm has no power over Paul. Okay, now there's one other wild little thing that happens here, and I'm gonna, this is a little bit of an Andrew reach. If I'm wrong, take it with a grain of salt, okay? I found it in a couple of places, but here we go. So we have this little side story then, when they shipwreck on the land, where they're on this island of Malta, and we have this really bizarre little story. A lot of people skip over it when they're preaching it. I can see why, but we're doing it. So here we go. Acts, 27, uh, Acts 28. Let's, uh, let's read 1 through 10. So they've shipwrecked, and this is our last big kind of narrative beat. After we were brought safely through... We then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand, meaning it bit him. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, though he has escaped from the sea. Justice has not allowed him to live. Paul, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. 
Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed. Putting his hands on him, healed him. When this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Okay, it could be a little easy, I think, maybe to, we've got like a built-in kind of Western mentality that basically the more materialistic you are, the more the less religious belief you have, the more advanced and progressive you are, uh, like on the progress narrative, not politically. And so I think it could be easy to read stories like this, or we've seen a story like this in Acts 14, where they mistake the disciples for gods and go like, oh, you know, yeah, simple-minded, yada, yada. Okay, the, the islanders on Malta have a better vision of what's going on. They are closer to the truth than the Romans. Because they recognize that there's some spiritual significance going on with this snake biting and Paul throwing off. They're like, this guy, there's some spiritual authority. They get it wrong immediately. They say, ah, he's a god. But you don't think Paul corrected that? And worked to heal everyone there? And so what's going on here, big picture? Here's, here's my reach. I just don't think there's any way that Luke and Paul, and then Luke's audience, don't see some symbolism in a snake coming out and biting Paul and Paul throwing it into the fire. We've looked at already in Acts 27, sailing on the chaotic seas and creation, and if it doesn't remind you of Satan, I, this snake coming out, I, I don't know. I think they had to be thinking about it. And probably what they're thinking about here is God has shown that he is sovereign over all the systems that humans have built. He is sovereign over all the chaotic seas in nature, and he is sovereign over the satanic. Nothing is going to stop God's vision. It all comes at Paul on this whole journey. All three of them come at him. And he is preserved for God's mission. And everyone who interacts with him comes away with a chance to see what is true, which is that God is the true king, that none of these things overpower him, that he is the only one. All right, so I'm not saying that the snake is literally Satan. I'm just saying I think I see the connection there, and I think they would have seen that as well. And the message is simple, right? God has already defeated Satan on the cross. He has no more power over the church. So to bring it home on the application here for this part of it, the chaotic waters do rage. I mean, Paul is shipwrecked and bitten by a snake. I doubt that was pleasant. But God hovers over those waters. He is sovereign. And look what's happened is God wanted condemned criminals. He wanted the Roman soldiers. He wanted the people of Malta to come into contact with the gospel. And so he sent Paul on a really chaotic journey. Putting Paul in chains was the way that that happened. Paul was unsuccessful in the way of the world so that he could be successful in the kingdom of God. I mean, Paul's resume at this point, if you look at it, is mostly prison time. He is not someone that you would look at and go, that guy has a successful future ahead of him. Right? But look at what he has done for the kingdom of God. I, I imagine, and C.S. Lewis talks about this, I imagine in the end, we're together before God. There will be these names that we never knew and never recognized, never published a book, never posted anything brilliant online, who were prison ministry doing these things in those places faithfully 
boldly proclaiming the gospel, doing glorious things for God's kingdom. We spend a lot of time asking God to remove us from difficult situations. I do not think we should stop doing that. In fact, Jesus himself, before he goes to the cross, prays, if there's any way out, please show me another way. Okay? But we should also have in the back of our mind that God maybe has a purpose for us where we're at. The comfort we have is that God's voice is the one that makes cosmos out of chaos. His is the creating voice. And we are his servants. There's no storm, political, natural, or spiritual, that has authority over him. He wins. All right, so in light of this, let's, let's finish the book of Acts. We've looked at the sovereignty of God, and I want to end by looking at the boldness of Christians in response. Well, so how does it end? Paul makes it to Rome. And I love this ending. Because it's set up the whole time. We're like, we're driving to meet with Caesar. But it doesn't even describe a meeting with Paul and Caesar. And you might think, like, well, what was the big, we were driving up for this big meeting of Caesar. Because it's just not as important as Paul ministering to the church. And that's how it ends. He wanted to get to Rome, not because he wanted a big face-off with Caesar. He wanted to get to the church at Rome and support and encourage it. And it's a slight rebuke, I think. That as I'm reading, I'm like, oh yeah, that face-off with Caesar is going to be pretty awesome. It's like, hmm, priorities may be in the wrong place. He comes there for the church. He does his normal thing. He presents the gospel. The normal thing happens. It's a very split crowd. Some are very hostile. Some are very on board with it. And we get these final verses. I want you to look at Acts 28, uh, just the last two, 30 and 31. Paul lived there, Rome, two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And that's it. That's the end of that. Now those words are very carefully, very intentionally chosen. Uh, if, we, if you can remember way back in Acts 4, the early church sees the mission that Jesus has given them, the Great Commission, and its huge charge and its huge work, and they look internally and go, we do not have what it takes to carry out this mission. And they give this prayer, and I want you to listen carefully to the prayer. It's in Acts 4. I'm going to read it to you. I think you'll see some of the themes I've been talking about. They start by quoting Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city, they were gathered together against your servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, both the political forces, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats, yet grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This was their prayer before the mission starts out. It was essentially, hey, we see all the threats. We see the political threats. We see the spiritual threats. We see the natural threats. And it terrifies us. And what we need, we need boldness. We know you win. But we're timid people. Give us boldness. There's a stereotype of Christianity that goes back a long way. 
uh, and we'll end with this. The idea is that submission to God, submitting to God, makes you a really passive, kind of nice coward. We can see it buried in Satan's talk to Eve, you know? You really want to submit? You could be like God. We can see it in, like, the romantic, romantic era, their view of Satan. We see it today. The idea is people are interesting until they convert, right? Uh, yeah, the movies are about the godfather, the anti-hero, you know, not necessarily the redeemed person. Uh, I was thinking about, I saw this in high school and it stuck with me. There's this, this older disaster, like the 60s, 70s when disaster films were a really big thing, airport and uh, all that. There was a one called Poseidon Adventure. Poseidon Adventure, there's this, some of you have seen it. There's this luxury cruise line, this luxury ship, a giant storm comes, knocks it over. Well, there's a character in there played by Gene Hackman and he's a priest and he gives this sermon that's, you know, totally heretical and I'm Scared to even read some of it up here, but I'm setting it up to knock it down, okay? Gene, Gene Hackman, at the beginning of this movie, gives this sermon, and he says this. God's pretty busy. He's got a long-term plan for humanity that stretches far beyond our comprehension, so it's not reasonable to expect him to concern himself with the individual. Therefore, don't pray to God to solve your problems. Have the guts to fight for yourself. God wants brave souls. He wants winners, not quitters. Okay, that's not real. I'm just, for the record. Uh, <laughs> all right, I laughed really hard the first time I heard that out of just pure shock. <laughs> what on earth? <laughs> Who wrote that? Uh, but it's an idea that's pretty popular. Religion makes you cowardly and passive, so be a man and stand up for yourself. Well, you've been through all of Acts with me. Did it? Did it make Paul and Peter and John passive cowards? I want to be careful here and say exactly what I mean, because I'm not trying to strip the cross of shame. If someone wants to say Christianity is just full of a bunch of weaklings who depend on this big divine being to make things right, I will say amen, thank God, okay? I agree. But if someone says Christianity makes people cowardly, timid hiders, I'll say this. We were cowardly, timid hiders, and the Spirit makes us bold. The disciples understand it, that's why they pray for it. Listen, the nails don't hold Jesus to the cross. His love holds him there. Jesus is such an active force that when he tells them, I'm going to go die, they're like stunned. What? You? Christianity is the way of life for the weak. We're the ones who will be spit on. God may need us in chains, but we're not called to cowardice. And when I look at Paul, I see a person of boldness, and I feel called to pray for that boldness as well. Christ has given us this mission at the end of the Gospels, the Great Commission, to go to the ends of the earth, to make disciples. And we've seen that mission coming true in Acts as the Spirit has created boldness in His people. And because of that mission, ultimately, our faith can't be private. It has to go into the public square. And I'm not trying to say anything political here. I'm not asking you to post more on social media. In fact, I'd probably encourage you to do that less. I'm actually thinking more locally. Your coworkers need to know you're a Christian. In tough times, ask people if you can pray for them. Visit people in the hospital. Invite people to read the scriptures with you. Open your home. Do something good. Don't tell people about it. Set an extra table at the dinner table and challenge yourself to fill it. Give away your money as if it's God's, because it is. Advocate for the helpless and powerless. Take relational risks and pray for boldness. But all those examples I just gave are from a position of power. They're from a position of strength. And I said at the beginning that often following God doesn't come on our own terms. I want to share the gospel on my own terms. 
For me, that means I'd rather be in the pulpit when I'm talking about Jesus. I got notes. I did research. I'm, I'm ready for this moment. I shaved. <laughs> Kevin bothers me every time I don't shave, so I shave religiously. Uh, but you know what? Sometimes the most meaningful conversations are 10.30 at night when I'm on dorm duty or when I'm exhausted and just want to watch a sporting event and my kid pulls on my sleeve, right? Sometimes it happens when I really don't want it to happen. Sometimes it happens when you're in the waiting room at the doctor's office, you're in the elevator, you see a coworker crying. It's been a long day. You have a lot going on. It's not a position of strength. Sometimes someone just has the courage to ask you a really hard question. Well, what do you actually think about this? Putting you in a position of weakness. Well, the word, the word boldness means three things. And I'm quoting John Stott here. In the Greek, it means speech which is candid, which means it doesn't conceal the truth. It's clear, it has no obscurity of expression, and it's confident. It doesn't fear consequences. Acts tells us this, we're afraid, but God wins. Neither politics, nor nature, nor Satan himself will overcome it. So we pray for boldness. Though we sail on a stormy seas with our enemies heading to our own death, we are bold. We're bold because we're not alone. We're with the master of the sea. We'll sin against the people we're called to love. We will falter. We'll grow weak need. We'll have to repent time and time again. But because of the good work of Christ, we will actually always move from a position of strength because it will be his strength and not ours. So we went up in the attic and we took a look around and this is what we found. We found that the early church was a vibrant, powerful, loving place that boldly went forward, not because they were amazing, not because they had some superhuman power, but because God himself was with them and no one can thwart his purposes. This is our family's story. To Jesus, our true king, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for everyone in this room that you have put us in particular places to share the gospel, to fight for what is right, to be a voice for those who don't have any. Father, help us to pay attention. You have put us in a position we do not have to go through life afraid or hiding. We ask for boldness, Father. We need that boldness. We don't have it on our own. Thank you that you provide the boldness, that you have laid before us good works, that this is our family story. Help us to continue that script and live it out in a way that honors you. In Jesus' name, amen.